0: You're in for a real treat in this episode. We're going to team up with Timothy P. Brown of Football Archaeology and have an opportunity to talk to Dr. Tony Collins from across the pond in the UK about the great game of rugby and its influence on American football. We have Tony and Tim coming up in just a moment to talk about the relationship of American football and the games of rugby.
1: This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com.
2: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
0: Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history, and welcome to a special edition of the Pigpen, as we are going to go into some great history of football, and not just American football. We're going to go back much further than that and to help me along the way here we, we've got a couple of guests uh I, I think uh possibly this first one we can't even uh, give him the title of guest anymore timothy p brown of footballarchaeology.com. uh tim welcome back to the pig pen
1: thanks darren glad to be back here and uh, especially looking forward to to this conversation
0: Tim, you uh, approached me a few weeks ago that uh, you had contact with uh, someone very special and an expert in football history a little bit differently than what we we normally talk about. And maybe you could give us a brief uh, synopsis of that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as uh, if, you know, those who read my, my blog on a regular basis know that I've been doing a A series on the original rules of football so from 1876 so the original rules of gridiron football and in doing that uh you know it's at that point football was rugby and so in trying to get a better understanding of 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 rugby um you know i i had had been doing additional research and had come across uh tony collins who's uh now professor emeritus in in the uk at a university and he's uh you know tony you'll be able to tell us otherwise but i think you're kind of the foremost authority you know, globally on the origins of these various games we call football and so anyways um because i'd come across some of this information we eventually you know i eventually or we kind of reached out to each other connected and had a conversation and just thought it'd be great to to have tony on here uh with you and let your guests kind of get a, get a different flavor of, of the games that we uh, love across the world.
0: Yeah, the listeners, we are in for a real treat today uh, because, as uh, Tim just said, you know, Tony is indeed an expert. Now, Just just listen to his bio line. He is uh, you know, from the UK. He's a social historian specializing in the history of sports. Uh, professor Collins is well accredited as he is an emeritus professor of history at De Montfort University, a research fellow at the Institute of Sports Humanities, and in 2018 was a visiting professor at the Beijing Sports University. So in 1999, he had his first book, Rugby's Great Split, which won the Aberdare Prize for Sports History Book of the Year. He followed uh, that up with some other uh, prestigious uh, books that uh, won that same prestigious award Uh, Rugby League in the 20th Century Britain in 2007, A Social History of English Rugby Union in 2010, The Oval World, A Global History of Rugby in 2016, and A Social History of English Rugby Union was also the winner of the 2015 world and union award for the best academic book on rugby union his other works uh, to his credit are sport and capitalist society in 2013 and how football began how the world's football codes were born 2018 uh, tony collins welcome to the pig ben
3: well, thanks for having me on. It's it's an honour to be here. Um, I only hope I can live up to your billing, which is uh, uh, um, fantastic. So, thanks very much. I, mean, I I am also listening to the to the podcast and uh, an avid reader of Tim's blog. So, it, it's great to be here.
0: Well, I think we both, I uh, speak for Tim, we both thank you for that. Uh, it's quite an honor to have you on here and quite an honor to have you looking at uh, some of our work too. So, uh, Tony, maybe you could just give us real briefly, uh, you know, we we saw all your accreditations and your books and everything. How do you, did you get to this point in your life where you were such an expert on rugby?
3: well it's it's i i guess like most people it's it's there's there's two aspects to this so i was um uh, i was born and bred and, uh, and raised in a um northern england port city called hull which is one of the few cities one of the cities in the north of england where the, the major sport there is rugby league football which was the breakaway from rugby union so I kind of grew up um, involved in the culture and the the, the heritage of, of rugby league from a very small age, you know, I think like you know, possibly you guys as well. I mean, my father took me to matches, his father took him. So it, there's a long tradition there. So I was very interested in, you know, why this was so important to us. Uh, but also when I um when I went to university, one of the things that interested me very much was the kind of social history of, of Britain and the world in the late 19th, early 20th century. And those are the... That, you know that's precisely the period when all the different football co- codes became popular started and became popular so I kind of I've been very lucky that I've been able to combine my my interest in in sports uh alongside a, a kind of scholarly academic his- interest in uh, in social history so yeah so I, I've kind of yeah you know, I've kind of been lucky uh, in being able to combine those two things now did you play the game uh, when you were younger? Um I well very badly, which is why I became a historian. <laughs> so <laughs> um yeah, but I would say um sport on the field was never was never I discovered very quickly, it was not my strong point. So uh, I guess sport off the field became became a substitute for that. So um but no, I mean I, I mean I'm also involved in the um the heritage uh, of rugby league. So I, I've worked work a lot with the rugby league authorities and clubs um on on the heritage of game organizing exhibitions and things like that so so i kind of um uh i am I'm, I'm kind of still involved in the uh, everyday life of the sport
0: okay now i i think i'm going to represent in this conversation i'm not sure if tim if i can he be equal representation but we are sort of the common uh american lover of football and uh, football history and to tell you the truth I know very little about the game of rugby. I've seen a few games played. I don't know that I understand it. Uh I'm not sure I I you know I know a brief history of it. And so as being a representative of, of the uh of my fellow uh commoner here in America to, uh, not knowing the sport, maybe you could just give us a real brief history uh of the game of rugby.
3: Well, it it can like like all the the different games that became you know, modern football games. It, its its roots are really in this kind of pre-industrial society before people lived in towns and worked in factories and you know lived on the land, and lots of football style games were played where the ball was kicked, passed, thrown uh, in order to reach a goal, which is kind of the, the basis of uh, of all the football games that we know today. And rugby itself. Um, Emerged as, as the name implies, from an elite um, private school in the English Midlands, Rugby School in the town of Rugby, Um, and it's Rugby Schools in the eighteen twenties, thirties, and forties. Rugby School became kind of the If you like the um, uh, the flagship of the British elite private school system, and one of the things that made it that was the importance that it placed on sport, both football in the winter and cricket in that was another sport which we won't get time to get into, which we won't get into now. Um, uh, In uh, you know, cricket was the summer game, rugby was rugby football was the winter game, and one of the interesting things that happened, uh, which really I think gave rugby a Uh, a a massive advantage over the other football games that were played at other elite schools. So all the English elite schools had their own version of football. Uh, You know, some of you listeners may have heard of places at very elite institutions like Eton and Harrow. They they also had their own versions of football. But rugby's became popular beyond its school because of the popularity of a book called Tom Brown's School Days which you may have heard of, uh, came out in 1857, was a massive, massive bestseller, a kind of uh, the equivalent of Harry Potter, but without the magic. Um, (laughs) And at the core of Tom Brown's school days was a a football match played under rugby rules. And um, the popularity of the book meant that, you know, people, not just in Britain, but people in the English-speaking world decided that, um, you know, Rugby football was an important part of a young man's education. So, so the game had a kind of uh, moral importance, not just a and you know, not it wasn't just a, a recreation or an entertainment. So, it had this moral educative uh, importance. Um, and that meant that other schools took it up and also that, you know, people in the general public read the book and wanted to play the game. And, um, you know, that's also the case in the States as well. I mean, uh, Tom Brown School, they sold something like a quarter of a million copies in the States and perhaps most famously, um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, um, said that this is one of two books that every uh, every red-blooded American boy should read. So, So the game... Really rose to popularity on the back of Tom Brown's School Days, oh. and that laid the basis for its um, uh, for its its spread around the English speaking world.
0: Okay, now that, that definitely clears it up and that's probably, uh, like you say, that's how it came across the pond here over to the States. Now, Tim, I, I know you have a, a series of uh, questions that you'd like to, talk to and ask Tony about, uh, you know, taking it up from that point where rugby is in the States and, uh, you know, sort of the transformation into what we know as the game of American football.
1: Yeah, and I guess I'd, I'd like to back it up just a little bit because one of the things that I think, um, so I've read, you know, Tony's book how football began and um for me the really fascinating thing about it is that you know i call it there was a stew of different folk games that you know over time some of them became more formalized like rugby you know developed established rules in the association game so just wondering if you know tony if you could talk a little bit about kind of what that looked like in england this you know, mishmash or stew of games and then how it starts diverting or diverging into some of the different football codes that we know today.
3: Sure, yeah. Well, there's two aspects to it. First, as I just mentioned, that um, the elite private schools in England each had their own uh, code of football rules. Um, But also there were uh, regional variations as well. So So there were games of football played with widely varying rules, some of them, most of which actually resembled rugby in the handling as well as kicking the ball was allowed. Uh, But it wasn't until the early 1860s when um, groups of young, well-to-do professional men who had left private school decided that they wanted to continue playing football as adults and started to form their own clubs. But obviously one of the problems that they had was that they'd all been to different schools and they couldn't play Um, they didn't have a common set of rules to play the game by. So they'd have this very um, um, really unacceptable situation where the home team always played under its rules whenever a match was played, which basically meant that the home team won every time. So it's not very interesting uh, for the players. Um, So in 1863, uh, a meeting was called in London to try and form uh, an organisation which would come up with one set of rules that would unite all the different football clubs and the schools to play the game under one set of rules, um, which led to the formation of um, the Football Association. However, it wasn't successful, and there was lots of um, uh, infighting, politicking, rivalry. And the Football Association was founded in 1863, but a number of of clubs were involved in the discussions, which preferred a more handling code of football, um, left the Football Association and eventually in 1871 they formed the rugby football union which was the game that organized the clubs who based their rules on the rules of of rugby school so it's those two organizations really that set the um, set the agenda for the consolidation and codification of the two different sets of rules one of the big things that helped um, that helped soccer under the football association was the fact that the football association started a national knockout cup competition in 1871 the fa cup which meant that uh, which soon became very popular and had great prestige and that meant that if you wanted to enter the cup and stand a chance of winning you had to understand their rules and play their rules to a high standard so that started a differentiation between the two codes which meant that clubs really had to Pick one side or the other. Um, you couldn't um, really play both codes and expect to be successful in them. So, the consolidation of both codes was really based on the um, the need for competition with other clubs on a serious and well regulated basis.
1: Yeah, interesting. And so, so the while that was going on in the in the, the UK over here on the uh, on the western side of the water. Um, you know, both in Canada and the U.S., uh, you know, the same kind of situation, occurred. you know, elite young men were playing local codes, uh, but then they started adopting both soccer rules and rugby rules. And my understanding is like, so I think probably most listeners will know that we picked up rugby through McGill University. I think the first game of rugby in Canada was actually British soldiers stationed. Over there, if I'm not mistaken. Are yeah, you, that's right. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, that's right. I think uh, um, in the 18, 1860s, perhaps. Yeah, but certainly, and clubs were being formed in Canada in the eighteen sixties. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so, and obviously, Canada had a much closer link at that point. It's still part of the British Empire uh, with the British. So there was more. So there was that uh, more football information flowing between the two countries than perhaps might have been between the states and Britain.
1: Yeah, and then. So then we end up with a, you know, kind of a mirror situation where we've got local, you know, basically in order to play one another, (laughs) you know, you had to come up with a common set of rules because we we face the same situation. Whoever made up the rules won the game, you know Um, you know, so for us, it ends up that, you know, football emerges, you know, at the time. um, So, you know, this is kind of, Similar or taking off of, of what Darren said, where you know most Americans think of of rugby the way it's played today, you know, not the way it was played yeah. in the eighteen seventies. And so, can you describe kind of how maybe association football or soccer and rugby, how those two games were played compared to your understanding of of American football in the eighteen, you know, as American football starts breaking away? What what were those games like?
3: Well, by the time we get to do to with soccer first, because I think it's the easiest. By the time we get to the mid-1870s, soccer is not too different from what it is today. Um, the rules have basically consolidated. In the early years of soccer, incidentally, um, you, you, um, outfield players could catch the ball and knock it down with their hands. And at one point in the mid-1860s, there, uh, there was a provision in the rules to allow the scoring of Rouges, touchdowns, which allowed people to... Uh, uh wanting to have a uh, uh, an attempt to score a goal so the idea that soccer has always been a game that's been played with the feet it's not it's not quite right but certainly by the time you get to the um to the 1870s it's it's basically 11, 11 players no outfield player uh, uh, could, uh, touch goalie, uh, could touch the ball with the hands only the goalie could touch the ball with the hands. so it didn't really change that much over the uh, well between then and now um however rugby was very very different from from what you uh what you see today in, in either rugby union or rugby league um firstly the the teams were 20 a side um which is different from today's 15 a side in rugby union 13 a side in rugby league um of those 20 players 15 were forwards and the game was essentially a succession of scrums um and a couple of interesting things i think from the point of view of the links with with football um firstly is the um, the way in which the game was organized there was 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 different in the way in, uh, in what happened when a player was tackled so before um 1878 uh, when a player was tackled and his fold forward, forward motion was stopped um he would have to get to his feet, um, wait for the other forwards in the scrum to gather around him, and then he would place the ball on the ground, shout down, and then each side would uh, attempt to kick the ball through the other side. And I think the, the fact the player had to uh, shout down when the ball was in play is, um, is the origins of of football's uh, system of downs. Um so that's quite interesting the other thing that's uh, that's very very different is when you see a rugby game today and the ball is put into the scrum the ball uh, always emerges at the back of the scr- out of the back of the scrum the idea is for the falls to heal the ball backwards so it comes out and then can be put in play by being passed to the backs that wasn't the case in rugby in the 1870s when it first reached America. The idea then was that the ball be in the scrum and the forwards would actually kick the ball forward and try to break through the opposing forward pack and then dribble the ball downfield. Then eventually it would come to hand and there may be some some passing. uh, And the object of the game then was to score a goal. Um, tries, which are obviously very important now to the game. And again, same as touchdowns, um, tries were precisely what the name implied. They touching the ball down over the goal line allowed you to try to kick a goal and only goals counted in the score. So, which again, there was no point system. Uh, it was simply as in soccer today, simply a question of which team scored the most goals. So, uh, the, so the game was, um, in a sense, unrecognisable from what it is today. Um, mass scrummaging, uh, very long scrummaging, not much uh, lateral passing, uh, not much kicking out of hand, other than to try and gain um, uh, gain territory to set up another scrum. But it was the scrum that was the core of the game, uh, and that I think proved to be um, the, if you like, the 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 pivot around which the other football games developed. It was by rejecting the importance of the scrum and the dominance of, um, uh, the forward pack and the reliance on the kicking of goals, which led to, in a sense, rugby fracturing into the, um, the four different games that we have today. Now, if I, if
0: I could ask a follow-up question on that, Tony, now you, you said that, uh, you know, back, back in that era, the, uh, the try, there was tries attempted but they weren't uh, score there was no scoring to it so what what was the purpose of the try if it was just the goals that were scored
3: well the try allowed, if you sc- if you touched the ball down over the over the over the goal line scored a try that meant that you were allowed a um a kick at goal a, a relatively unhindered kick at goal initially in rugby rules the rule was that you touched the ball down over the line and then you had to throw the ball back out um from the goal line to your kicker who would then attempt to uh, to kick a goal um the rugby union abandoned that rule because it's too uh, too complex and also t- became quite dangerous um and al- allowed uh the kicker simply to take a goal ki- take a kick at goal from the point uh, at which the try scorer crossed the goal line but it wasn't until 1886 that tries actually had any value in the scoring system. And even then, tries were worth one point and a goal was worth three points. And the drop goal, um, which um uh I think famously, I think Doug Flutie was the last one, last person to try one in the um NFL. I might be wrong on that, but um a drop goal in those days was worth four points, so that was the mo- that was the most valuable way of scoring up until um, until the nineteen forties, actually in rugby union.
1: Yeah. So it, just to, for the listeners, a drop goal is, I mean, an American would call it a drop kick.
3: Yeah. But sorry, yeah, you know, it's, same, it's a goal from process. a drop kick. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's really uh, what you've described is fascinating because that is, you know, from a scoring standpoint, that was. Football early on because football was rugby right and so and i think the one thing that really surprised me intrigued me in you know reading some of your your in your you know your website and your your book is just the whole you know i always had the impression of rugby being much more of a of free-flowing game so when i'm when i was thinking football adopted rugby rules it still kind of looked like the rugby we know today rather than the scrumming mauling kind of game that you describe and so i we had an, an earlier conversation but you know when about this but when when americans changed football to to use 15 and then 11 players that had a dramatic impact on the nature of play and could you talk about that a bit
3: yeah and I think this is one of again one of the pivotal moments in the history of rugby and football. So there was as you might imagine there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the way that rugby was played because um mm. It's not much of a spectacle just to see thirty guys pushing and shoving a ball, uh, which you which you rarely see anyway in that, in that type of game. So there was pressure to reduce the size of teams and make the make the game more interesting and free flowing, partly in response to soccer, which is obviously is, doesn't have scrums and is much more open game. So in uh, in eighteen seventy five, the Rugby Football Union, the governing body, reduced the number of players in the team to fifteen in response to that, and then it. Um, uh, it changed the, the actual um, tackle law in 1878, whereby if a player was tackled, he had to release the ball straight away. So the the old style scrimmaging where players would just line up, the, the ball would be declared down and then the pushing would begin, um, changed very rapidly. And that meant that the ball could come into play much more quickly. Nevertheless, there was still a... Um, Still, dissension about the way that rugby developed um, over over the next ten years, and the, the the constant centrality of the scrum. And I think that we can see this in um, in America and um, uh, in Canada, where they football in those countries moved away um, quite quickly from the scrum. And incidentally, one of the things that would be interesting in your thoughts is that the um, it seems that the Canadians were the first. Um, footballers to seriously discuss getting rid of the scrum in 1875. They held a football conference in Toronto where they, you know, they criticised the importance of the scrum and said it was a blight on the game, which eventually led to them adopting a more open formation. But that was also true within rugby in in Britain and Australia as well, because there were lots of complaints about the the importance of scrummaging, the fact that the game wasn't more open, the fact that goals were regarded as more important than tries, which certainly people in the north of England, South Wales, and Australia in rugby felt that tries were much more important uh, and much more interesting for spectators, and also you know much more scientific in the uh, in the way they use the term scientific in those days. So this general dissatisfaction with the dominance of the scrum in rugby. Could also be found within rugby itself, and so a lot of the reasons for the changes that were brought in to American football, obviously most notably by Walter Camp, um, were responses to similar to problems which were similarly being grappled with, uh, obviously in Canada, but also within rugby itself. And it was one of these. This was one of the factors that led to the um, the breakaway of the um, uh, of that led to the formation of rugby league in uh, 1895 which again moved away from having so many scrums reduced the number of players on the pitch to make the game more open and more attractive so it's that type of it's that late 1870s period where football starts to become football as we know it is also a crucial period for the the subsequent development of rugby and the way that rugby itself split into two sports
1: yeah and you know in in an earlier conversation we had talked about how when football you know in a game of 20 or 15 on a side it was easier in a sense to keep the ball in the scrum once you have only 11 players and you start dropping a couple of them back off off of the line so you have fewer forwards now all of a sudden it's easier for that ball to get out of there right and and to to heal it back and so then that leads to the passing and openness so I mean, if if I understood that correctly, in many respects, American football or possibly Canadian, you know, rugby at the time, kind of generated that openness, or was the first to generate that kind of open game, as opposed to the scrummy mauling, you know, game of the past.
3: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, yeah, as we've discussed before, I think the. Um, the adoption of 11 aside teams meant that the you know even if you wanted to have scrummaging in a similar way to what you had in rugby it's very difficult because you haven't got enough players and as soon as you start to kick the ball forward then the ball is going to come out of the scrum and if you kick it forward your opponents are going to get possession um if you're trying to hold it in the scrum as was a common tactic within rugby um you really don't have the numbers to keep the ball in the scrum for very long it's it's going to come out and so i think that immediately raises the question of what do you do and how do you control the ball um which obviously you know football um solved by the um by the snapback um canadian football had a similar thing with uh, with the um, with what they call a screen and eventually in rugby league, they also introduced what was called the play the ball, which was a similar type similar type of thing and still is a similar type of thing to the um, to the original snap in football where the ball was rolled back with the foot by the center to the to the quarterback. And if, you know, if you watch the game of rugby league today, you'll see that when a player's tackled, um, he stands up, puts the ball, and then uses his foot to roll it back. Um, to what rugby calls the dummy half, but is kind of equivalent to uh, to a quarterback.
1: So, for the uh, probably the typical American, can you distinguish for us rugby union and rugby league?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a big question. In, uh, in, two, minutes.
1: in, two, in two, minutes. two minutes,
3: all right. That's um, that is uh, that's the toughest challenge of the week. That one. Um, there's essentially two two aspects to it. It's Essentially, it revolved around the question of payment for players. The The leaders of rugby, the rugby football union, were um, committed to the amateur ideal. In the north of England, where the game of rugby was very popular amongst industrial workers and became a mass spectator sport, and at one point it was more popular than soccer, um, players had to take time off work to play the game, uh, to train, and so they lost wages. And so clubs in the north um, started a campaign to allow players to be paid what they call broken time payments, which was compensation for having to take time off work. Um, the leaders of the rugby union said, no, this is just tantamount to professionalism. We're not having it. And eventually they started to ban players, suspend clubs. And that led to the um, the strongest clubs in the north of England deciding that enough was enough and that you know we want to have a game where players are allowed to be paid. Uh, it's a spectator sport and we think the players should be, uh, you know, p- paid in the same way as other entertainers are. And in 1895, um, they broke away to form what was initially called the Northern Union, but would became known as the, um, later became known as the rugby league. And the other aspect of that split was something I just hinted at earlier is that there was also a different conception of how the game should be played. The, the clubs in the North didn't like the emphasis on scrummaging wanted to put the, the emphasis on the scoring of tries, which they felt were more spectacular, more scientific, more modern. And also they wanted to make the game more open because of the, the threat from soccer. I mean, soccer was becoming a, you know essentially a juggernaut that was taking over everything. And so they wanted to be able to respond by making rugby as attractive as possible. And so it's those two elements, the, the desire to pay players, And also the the desire to have a more open, spectacular game that moved away from the traditional rugby scrummaging that led to the creation of Rugby League. And uh, a similar process took place in Australia, where the game is now uh, the dominant game in Eastern Australia, the National Rugby League's, Probably the biggest club rugby competition of any uh, rugby code in the world, um, and it's played in New Zealand, France, and many other many other countries. Um, rugby Union is still the the biggest form of rugby, uh, more popular. It, it's got a World Cup starting in a couple of months in France, um, and it's still very much a, a game of. Um, uh, of the, if you like, the professional classes, the more middle class, class uh, elements of society, rugby league, wherever it's played, is a very much a blue collar sport. Uh, it's it's very easily distinguishable. The two constituencies of rugby union and rugby league uh, are actually very very different. So it's kind of a combination of both differences on the pitch and social differences off the pitch. And I think yeah, in a sense, rugby league has more. Um, probably has more in common with football uh, than rugby union. Um, There's a famous Australian rugby league coach who once said uh, um, football and rugby league um, are the same sport, but with different rules in that, you know, when you don't have the ball, you've got to tackle hard. When you do have the ball, you've got to run hard and score tries or touchdowns. That
1: is really interesting. And and I I love the, um, you know, the, you know, it's the U.S. had an analogous situation. You know, you talked before about you know uh, the kind of the moral aspect of of playing rugby and you know kind of the rough and tough sport, the muscular Christianity uh, issue, and so that's kind of the elites' approach. And then you've got the spectator-oriented, professional, industrial. Uh, focus and so you know th- those same tensions played out in America between the the elite universities playing football and then the guys in Pennsylvania and uh, Ohio and yeah. the leagues that they played you know in, in kind of industrial an industrial game of of football.
3: Yeah, very similar. I always remember years ago um, in the nineteen eighties when um, um, British TV first started to broadcast football and the NFL had an exhibition match in, at Wembley in the mid-1980s with the Buffalo Bills. Frank Gifford um, came over to England and um, uh, descri- for English viewers, described the Bills as being very similar to uh, um, one of the Northern Rugby League teams because they come from a similar you know, industrial town, which isn't doing too well. And that's the same, uh, you know, that pretty much sums up where Rugby League's played in uh, in the UK.
1: Yeah, interesting. um You know, another thing that really intrigues me is, you know, in American football, um, you know, due to we had some some rule changes that, and mostly the nature of tackling. And then obviously we've allowed blocking since very early on. And so our game ended up becoming this mass and momentum, very rough physical game, lots and lots of injuries, and, and ultimately deaths as well. And so did, did the, did other football codes go through similar kinds of experiences, um, and you know, kind of if so, how how they resolve it? How did they adjust their rules to, uh, to to try to remedy the situation?
3: Well, that's a really interesting question because there was this debate took place, you know, up until from really from the eighteen eighties until the. Um, the beginning of the First World War in 1914 across British sport about the dangers of playing football, whether it's soccer or rugby. Um, and interestingly enough, the um, uh, the the medical profession seemed to agree that soccer was more dangerous than rugby because of the danger of broken legs. Um, but there was nothing like the the great crisis in the middle of the 1900s that confronted football. Um, that, however, the only the only similar thing um, actually took place in 1870. There was a um, There was a bit of a hue hue and cry, if you like, um, uh, public consternation about um, deaths playing rugby at schools. And one of the reasons why the Rugby Football Union was formed in 1871 was to uh, organise the game and also make its rules safer. Um, there had been uh, the, the Times, you the know, famous London Times newspaper, the the, the, um, uh, the main newspaper in Britain. Uh, well, uh, it still is today. Uh, the Times had a, a kind of campaign against the playing of rugby because uh, it, it carried lists of um, you know young men who'd broken legs, broken collarbones, uh, and who had even died playing the game. And so were one of the... Um, one of the motivating factors for the formation of the rugby union was to, was to make the game safer and make the rules a bit safer. Um, so you can see very strange things in the first set of rugby union rules, such as um, you can't use iron plates um, uh, or you know, steel toe caps on football boots, which in fact was actually quite common in schools um, because hacking, um, kicking opponent's shins, was a an accepted part of the game. Uh, in schools, and was seen as a way of um, demonstrating your hardness. Not only you know being able to kick, but also being able to take to take hacks was a a symbol of your uh, uh, of how hard you were of your masculinity of your fitness. But obviously that led to great danger. That led to great dangers. You know, particularly when people fought, fell over and could get kicked in the head with iron boots and things like that. Uh, so one of the things that uh, rugby union did when it was uh, when the rugby football union was formed in 1871. Was to make the game uh, much more safer, ban hacking, and outlaw the use of fortified boots. So, so that's the nearest thing that occurred. But there isn't really the um, the same. Well, there isn't really the same number of deaths as what um, what to happen in football with the mass plays. Uh, and there's never the same type of outcry that. That you got in 1905, 1906, when you know the president called in the um, the heads of um, colleges to try and figure out what to do about um, stopping football from becoming so violent.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that's interesting, you know, I've always said I'm going to read, write an article about it. it. Just takes so much work to do it, but you know, it the, a, a number of the deaths in the let's just call it 1895 to 1905, and even you know, the next ten years. A lot of those deaths are were not things that somebody would die from today you know it was you know literally scratches on the football field that got infected or you know you mentioned broken legs you know broken legs at one time could be a death sentence you know that's yeah. not really the case anymore you know and so yeah. that's part of and you know clearly they were the crushed skulls and those kinds of things that were direct directly the result of the nature of, of the play and that which is why they changed some of those things but yeah, it's a, it. You know that whole. A lot of the safety issues wouldn't be safety issues anymore. You know, just because of the advances of, of modern medicine.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I think the other thing is that obviously there's, a, a, as occasionally occurred in uh, in England, um, there's obviously a bit of a moral panic about football for a whole variety of reasons. Um, uh, so the, you know the numbers of deaths you know, without wishing to downplay the, the personal tragedy, it's it's easy for the number of deaths to be exaggerated. I mean, for example, in the, in the early 1890s, there was a uh, a London newspaper, the Palm Mall Gazette, um, campaigned against football and compiled this list of 70-odd players who it claimed had been killed playing rugby in the north of England in just three years, which, you know, if that was true, that would be a... a, a that would be a national scandal. It's almost one player being killed every week of the season. But in fact, when you go back and look at the figures, then they're not um, they're not particularly uh, robust. Some of them are things that happen after matches. Some of them are things that, as you say, you know, could have happened in any walk of life. Like people get sepsis from from a scratch, uh, or from you know, broken fingers and things like that, um, which are, you know, are not peculiar to football, uh, or peculiar to rugby in this case. So I think it's worth um, uh, treating figures of deaths with something of a pinch of salt. Uh, That's not to downplay them or decry them or to say there's anything fake about them. Uh, But it's not quite as straightforward as I I think um, the history books tell us at the moment.
0: Yeah I think this is quite incredible and eye opening to to me you know again wearing that that cap of the average American football fan I think uh, we consider you know rugby to be more of the brutal sport cuz of our, our perception today you know in our football we're, we're wearing helmets and shoulder pads and all kinds of protection you look at these rugby players are pretty much just going out there with a a shirt and shorts from what our perspective is and uh you know making a lot of contact like you would in a game of football. So I I think that's incredible that the the deaths and the injuries weren't as prevalent in in early rugby as they were in American football.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing it's there, you often get sometimes when football fans and rugby fans get together, you get this debate, which is the toughest. Mm -hmm. And the fact is they're both different. I mean, one of the things I think that makes, um, you know, football is obviously a game of short bursts, And the fact that so much emphasis is placed on uh, yardage means that there's much more force and impact in tackles than what you normally get within rugby. But then again, in rugby, you've got to tackle and run with the ball usually for a full eighty minutes, which you know footballers don't do. So, that, you know the difference. As I say, with all football codes, when people try to say, you know, my game's better than yours, my game's tougher than yours, or anything, each one has its own challenges and each one is uh, has its own strengths. So it's uh, they're not. It's not really worth comparing in, in any way. I don't think.
1: Yeah, uh, the other thing is obviously rugby doesn't allow interfering or blocking yeah right and so while um you know that just dramatically changes the nature of the game uh the the amount of contact even if it's not as the high impact contact always that you see in you know from a tackle um yeah but you know i know you know rugby's got its own concussion issues you know that uh you know similar similar to what
3: football faces. yeah exactly yeah yeah
1: so uh, just wondering um did any other games that, you know, at different points allow the armoring of players, you know, the padding and, you know, football from early on had, you know, no hard surface or no hard uh, materials. So no iron, no, I believe it's called gutta percha or gutta percha, yeah. you know, it's yeah, yeah. synthetic from Indonesian trees, right? Yeah. Or like a tar plastic sort of substance. And so, you know, that rule existed for a long time, which is part of the reason why helmets were fairly soft until say 20s um but then obviously football went away from, from that you know with the plastic helmets and harder harder leather but did did any other games kind of have a period where they started allowing more padding or is it has it pretty much been you're on your own baby
3: yeah kind of i mean it's for a long time um players in in both um both games of rugby uh, and one or two still loose it. What, wore, what, wore, wore, um, what are called scrum caps, which are kind of like the old-fashioned um, leather helmets, but made of much thinner material. Partly because it was believed that for a long time that that would um, um, uh, that that would stop the dangers of um, concussion, you know, head clashes. But whereas in, and in fact, there's no evidence that they do. In fact, people scientists have claimed that um, by giving players extra confidence, they make them. Um, uh, less um, less aware of safety issues uh, head contact, and there was a period in the nineteen eighties nineteen nineties when um, rugby league players wore thin shoulder pads underneath their shirts. Um, you know nothing on the scale of football players' shoulder pads, but by and large, the rugby codes have stayed clear from um, that type of protective uh, or offensive. Um, uh, body wear. Um, I think primarily because in an 80 minute game, when players are involved, you know, effectively players are playing both ways uh, to, you know, in, uh, in football terms. Um, so to get, to carry extra weight um, would, um, you know, would not be a good thing.
1: A quick comment, just say like in the 1910s, especially there was a big movement to shed pads, you know, to, to, the game was was going to be a speed game. So get rid of all padding. And, you know, you're kind of looked down upon if you protected yourself with padding. And then obviously then things went back the other direction. But so similar, similar thing happened.
3: Yeah, I mean, just one, one quick note on that. What What's interesting is that in the very early years of rugby, 1860s, 1870s, when hacking was still used, uh, was still part of the game, um, to wear shin guards. Um, was seen as a um, as a sign of weakness, and there is a lot of stories where players would go onto the pitch wearing shin guards, and they'd be told either you take them off or we're going to kick them off, and uh, often they ended up worse for wear. <laughs> <laughs> interesting now if i could uh
0: gentlemen i, I just want to catapult us more to the modern times here and look at some of the differences between rugby football uh, both in the union and the the rugby league and what we know you know in america and i guess one of the the things that uh you know football our modern football we are uh, a society that just loves statistics uh you know it's uh we Baseball sort of started it uh, over a century ago. Football looked for ways to get statistics to get fans more involved. And today it's evolved into, you know, fantasy football and a variety of things. Now, is there statistics that are important to the game of rugby that uh, folks keep track of today?
3: Um, yeah, but not in the same way. Um, I think one of the things that's, uh, that's very striking about football, and really I think American sport, is the em- the emphasis that there has been on statistics for a very long time. Um, there's a little bit of it now, but basically for most of its history, the only statistics that really mattered in terms of players were you know, who scored the most tries in the season, who scored the most tries in the career, who scored the most goals. Um and the individual accomplishments like that there was um, you know so in terms of you know measuring yardage um tackles made um your um kickoff returns you know you name it any anything that you, you know it's any football fan uh, knows off the top of their head those things really don't exist to any great extent in in uh any of the other game, I mean, apart from Canadian football, in any of the other games, um, as I said, there's a, the the rise of you know data analytics um, has meant that there's more of that now, and you, you know uh, even in soccer, which is obviously much harder to keep any detailed stats, um, and certainly in the two rugby games, you can now find you know if you want to go and find details of uh, the yardage players have made, tackles they've made, tackle busts they've made, then then you can find them, and they're certainly used. Um, uh by coaching staffs
0: okay and i guess the the other uh, mod- more modern question i have for you uh, being from the uk you know from Amer- american perspective when we talk about the game of football there there's only really one thing and it's you know the gridiron it's american football and we know uh that folks in in england are when you talk about football Well, it could be a variety of things. So how would, if somebody's sitting there reading the London Times or any of the other uh, periodicals over there, and somebody mentions the game of football, how do they differentiate between all these different uh, games that are considered football?
3: Well, that's a really interesting question, because that is a real problem when you look at reports of the various types of football in the 19th century that are in the newspapers. Because it's assumed by and large that you will know which type of football is being referred to. So um I th- I think a basic rule of thumb in this is that whichever sport got to a place first, whichever you know, whichever football code got to a place first, that is the one that is normally called football. So um you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, I come from a town called Hull and rugby league was the most important sport there. So my grandfather, who was born in 1907, always called it football. Um, whereas you go to other places and football football means soccer. By and large now in England, then if you talk about football, people assume you're referring to soccer. And you get this, which you know, I guess you may have had as well, that um uh, soccer fans will say, How can it be football if it's not played with the feet? Um but the other football codes are played with the feet, just not to the same extent that soccer is. And also um the um the uh, the 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 nickname soccer is a very English invention anyway, because it's a um, it comes from the word association, the soc and association. And when these games were played in the elite private schools. Um, association football would be referred to as soccer and rugby football would be referred to as rugger. Um, so that's the origins of the two names. So its it, I'll tell you the worst place to go, though, if you go to Australia, where there are um, four major football codes, um, Australian Rules Football, which again is another oval ball code um, which derives from rugby school. Uh, you have Rugby Union Football, Rugby League Football and Association Football. And figuring out which code a person is referring to when they talk about football can sometimes be quite difficult um so so yeah it's um yeah I think the key th- it's the, the key thing here is uh, when in Rome do as the Romans do and uh, whatever the locals refer to as football that's football <laughs>
1: <laughs> Darren your yeah your question you know raised an interesting thing to me you know one of the things that we get into, especially in football i think you know because the game the game has changed so dramatically i mean to some extent baseball is still baseball right but football yeah. has changed so dramatically uh, from back in the day and so the goat argument the greatest of all time all you know, kinds of arguments become very difficult because it becomes it's tough to compare a player from one time to another and you've got recency bias etc do does the same thing occur in in rugby i mean do people Feel like they can go back and say somebody who played who was a star of 1910 you know how does he compare to a player from the 1980s versus you know 2020s
3: yeah it's a really difficult issue i mean i've um um i've been involved in um panels where you decide um yeah you know, who who's the greatest player of all time and um it, it's it's almost it it's pretty much impossible because um obviously, as a historian, I've got much greater knowledge of players in the past than a regular fan um and you know naturally your your biases towards players that you've seen play um and that you know have have had an impact that's still felt today so it's it's an incredibly it's an incredibly difficult thing, and as you say, i mean when I first started watching football on british t v in the nineteen eighties it's um, it, it's a very different game today when I watch it than what it was when I was watching uh, Mike Ditka's Chicago Bears win the, win the Super Bowl in 85. So, And that's true with the other games as well. I mean, Rugby Union has changed a tremendous amount, not least the fact that in the past 40 years, it's gone from being a purely amateur sport to being a fully professional one. And it's changed its rules to become in a sense, a little bit closer to the rugby league. There's more emphasis on the scoring of tries, less emphasis on scrums, but it's still, its principles are the same. And again, rugby league has changed very much. Um, I think one of the interesting things uh, is the impact that football has had on the other football codes, uh, American football has had on the other uh, football codes, particularly the rugby codes. I mean, I think you know Canada is an obvious example where um, Canadian, what was originally Canadian rugby, slowly transformed itself um, partly under the influence of what was going on south of the border uh, to become, you know, the 12 side um three-down gridiron. Um, but I think when you look at rugby league, rugby league has also been influ- influenced quite heavily by football over the years. So, for example, uh, unlike rugby union, there's you only have a limited number of tackles uh, with which to score. So... Um, originally in, in 1966 um there was an unlimited number of tackles which kind of similar to the problem that faced football in the 1880s before three downs were brought in um teams would just hang on to the ball uh, as long as they could and uh, uh particularly if they got into the lead and so that was that was changed in 1966 when the rugby league authorities brought in the system of uh, what you would call four downs we we call four tackles and then that was changed to open the game up a bit more to uh, um six tackles in the early 1970s. And I was struck by something you wrote Tim on at the weekend about um Eddie Cokhams at Wisconsin, who actually proposed um five or six downs without a without any yardage requirement, which is essentially the system that rugby league plays yeah. today. you 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 have the ball six times. And if you don't do anything, if you don't score, um, you turn it over to the other side. So there's, you know, despite the fact that you know we're in the 21st century, the games appear to have never been further apart. There's still a little bit of influence going backwards and forwards. And obviously, yeah, Pete Carroll at uh, uh, at the Seahawks is a big fan of uh, rugby tackling. So there's, uh, so the the those links that existed between the sports, the the different types of football. In the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties, there's still a little residue of that around today. In our modern times, now I know we've seen
0: it in the NFL, even even uh, recently, where some former uh, legends of the game of rugby have come across in the United States and tried their hand at American football, trying out for uh, you know an NFL team. Uh, I know for a while there we we, we in the NFL we had uh, some players from Europe that were put on like a practice squad to develop yeah. them. But I haven't really heard other than maybe a kicker uh making it into American football from one of the other items of uh, of football, rugby or whatever. Has has it, anything ever gone the other way where an American football player has uh, become something substantial in the game of rugby?
3: Um there's a couple of uh, footballers. Um, one was a guy called um, uh, Al Kirkland, who uh, I think he played semi-pro football. I don't think he was. I don't think he's ever drafted into the NFL, but he came over and quite a lot, had quite a long career in, in British rugby league. Um, there was a more short-lived um, uh, guy called Manfred Moore who went to play rugby league in uh, in uh, Australia uh, in the 1970s. Who I think. May have played for the Saints. I'm not sure. I'd have to check that one out. Um, but interesting enough, probably the most the most influential football player who came to play rugby to play rugby union was a guy called Pete Dawkins who came to Cambridge mm-hmm. University in the late 1950s. I think he was a Heisman Trophy winner.
1: Yeah, um, yeah from Army.
3: Yeah, and yeah, uh, and Pete Dawkins was the man who introduced the spiral throw in a, in rugby union when the ball goes uh, out of bounds or into touch. As we call it, um, the, it comes back into play through what's called the lineout when the two sets of forwards line up alongside each other and the balls thrown back in, uh, and they 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 lift up and try and get the ball and put it out to the packs. Um, for a long time, um, the ball was simply thrown in like soccer style over the head. Uh, sometimes it's thrown underarm, upwards, and over. Uh, but it was Pete Dawkins who, uh, when he came to Cambridge, introduced the. Um, um, the torpedo pass, um, sorry, the spiral pass to um uh to the line out. And that's the system that he's used um throughout rugby union now for for putting for bringing the ball back into play in a line out. So um yeah so Pete Dawkins has probably been the most influential American footballer ever uh to play rugby because the what he introduced into the game into the nineteen fifties is is still um prevalent today. Uh, Tim,
0: Tim, do you have any uh, further or follow-up questions to, to ask Tony? Uh, no,
1: I, you know, I mean, partly in the interest of t- I mean, I, we could stay on here all afternoon, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but uh, I, I just wanted to say, this is like, you know, I don't know, uh, Darren, from your perspective, but certainly from my perspective, this is the greatest of all time mm-hmm. <laughs> session yeah. for the podcast. I mean, Absolutely. I just, this has been fascinating. It's so much fun to to, to hear your perspective on these things, Tony. It's, it's, Really, really fun. Very much appreciate it.
3: Yeah, me too. It's really enjoyable because I think one of the problems that we have as football historians is that it's very easy to get kind of tunnel vision. Um, uh, and so, you know, you, you just look at your own your own football. Um, and I think these type of discussions, when you step back and then think, well, hey, there's a there's a lot in common here and certainly, you know, certainly in the history and the, the origins that yep. were, you know, were of the same, same parentage. Uh, but even, you know, even today in the way in which problems are dealt with um, the way innovations are brought into the game, I think there's, there's a lot that, well, I think there's a lot of the games can learn each other on the pitch, but also as, as historians, I think there's a lot, um, there's a lot of value from discussions like this and uh, long may they continue
0: absolutely i agree now now tony before we let you go let's uh, let the listeners know that who may be interested in picking up one of your books or any of your other projects your podcast or websites uh, maybe you could just uh give us some idea of how to get in touch uh, with what some of your work is
3: sure yeah thanks so my website is www.tonycollins.org and you can get a um uh, an extensive preview of how football began from the website by clicking on the um, uh, the cover that's on the on the website. Uh, I also have a, a podcast which has been a little bit uh, quiet this year because I'm working on a, um, a, a, a another project, but that um, uh, that's been running for you know, four or five years now, uh, which covers a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today. It looks at the history of of rugby uh, a little bit of football history and certainly a lot about how they relate to to each other and how they're intertwined so that that's uh, you can find that links to that at TonyCollins.org, but also you know if you go to uh, rugbyreloaded.com that'll take you straight to episodes of the podcast so um uh, so, yeah, that's where you can find me. And uh, hopefully the podcast will um, – my plan is to get the podcast back up and running uh, in the next couple of months. And uh, we'll be doing a lot more of these very interesting discussions. And, yeah, you know, hopefully I can reciprocate and have you guys on the show as well. Uh, that'd be very, very in, intriguing and
0: uh, very interesting to me. I can't speak for Tim, but yeah, I'd be delighted to do that. Now,
1: Yeah, uh, and I also just wanted to say, you know, like – I've got a copy. Of, and part of the reason why we, we initially connected was because I've, I've read the, how football began and just so readers or listeners know, it kind of, it goes back to some of the beginnings that, that, that Tony described here, but then also, you know, kind of on a country by country or code by code basis, it, it goes through, you know, Canadian football, kind of what's the story there? How did it, how did it, it evolve and break away from the, from this, uh, you know, stew of games that, that occurred. And so anyways, if you're if you're in australia if you're in canada wherever you know there's portions of this book that are directly applicable to your world and then others that are you know very much global in nature and just well, fascinating reading
0: yeah uh, most most definitely now you know i can't uh tell you enough how thankful we are and honored to have you on here tony and have this great discussion with us i feel almost like uh it's sort of a family reunion of sorts of you know meeting some <laughs> second and third cousins and yeah, that's right yeah yeah yeah. Different genres yeah. of football <laughs> together and uniting them yeah. and uh, this is really uh triumphant you know i, f- I feel pretty pretty honored to, to have this happen here so we we thank you for that and we thank you for your time and uh sharing your knowledge
3: yeah thanks guys it's been a blast i've really enjoyed it
1: it's been great talking, Cuz.
2: on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that Darren Hayes, the host of the Big Skin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.